Hello, so over the break, I read Other Minds by Peter Godfrey Smith, subtitled The Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness, which was a really interesting book about the title subjects, like cephalopods and the mind and language and social intelligence and a bunch of other things. Um, so I read this book and had a discussion about it with my friend Christian. Christian has taken a neuroscience class with me in high school, so he knows the basics of the field, but one of his main hobbies is reading philosophy. So he's read a bit about the philosophy of the mind and consciousness and language, so I thought he'd be a fun perspective to kind of discuss the subject with. So this is a bit of a long project, but I hope the conversation is enlightening. I thought something that was really cool was like the whole idea of like how a nervous system develops because like there's that whole like important part about how the internalization of signaling so like bacteria signal to each other and like just the concentration of things in the environment they like sense things in the environment and then they respond to that but then that is kind of what a nervous system does but for multicellular organisms that needed to be internalized and like take signaling to like external organisms and do it within an organism between different types of cells. I liked how he started with like that, like very base thing of like what a nervous system is and is like signaling. So yeah, yeah. And especially how he used that to sort of lead into his discussion about how the octopus nervous system is different from the human nervous system. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. 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 But it's cool that like the last common ancestor or whatever of us and the octopus is the last common ancestor between vertebrates and invertebrates. And that thing is just like a worm. <laughs> and it's like, it's so basic and like barely has a nervous system. And I found mm. it really cool about, we have like such complex nervous systems. And according to this book and something I agree with, cephalopods also do. And that arose like independently in two different evolutionary branches is like really cool to me. So one of the other things about like how, why or how the nervous system developed is this whole like distinction between the sensory motor view and like the action shaping view. So like the sensory motor view is something happens and you sense it and then you do a motor response to it. And that's like one reason why you would need a nervous system. And the other view is action shaping in that in order to like do a movement fluidly and properly, you need a nervous system to coordinate like all of the muscles and make everything happen in a sequence. And so like those are two reasons why you would need a nervous system. And then I liked how he talked about how these are kind of conflicting views, but he likes the idea that an early nervous system could be something that is just, that was just action shaping. And then it kind of transitioned into something that did both. He talked about the Cambrian explosion as being like the moment when like, or the moment, the process where like a lot of things change, one of which being you get eye spots and like sensory stalks and like all of that stuff and like a bilateral body plan. So life gets more complex. You get more complex sensation, which would make sense that then you would get a more complex nervous system because you have more information coming in. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Another thing that I found interesting in the book regarding sort of like the evolution of nervous systems is I was just reading like the last little bits of the book mm -hmm. and he was talking about how this Right, we think that most cephalopods, like squid, cuttlefish, octopi, are fairly intelligent creatures compared to most other like uh, snails. <laughs> yeah, yeah, snails and other uh, non-human animals. 
Yeah. And he talks about how it used to be that uh, we thought that this sort of like explosion in intelligence occurred once in sort of like the cephalopod, cephalopod line. But now we now like the evidence sort of suggests that process actually didn't happen once, but actually happened twice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which I, I found like pretty interesting that, you know, we could have sort of like this explosion in, you know, an alternative intelligence more than one time in the evolutionary tree and doesn't even have any sort of relationship with, you know, the evolutionary processes going on with, with vertebrate species like ourselves. So yeah. I thought, I, I found that pretty interesting, you know, how the breakdown between um, what is it? Octo, octopods and um, what do you call them? Decapods? Yeah. 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 The 10 foot so, and the eight footed. Right. So there's, so like in cephalopods, the main three that he talks about are octopuses, squids, and cuttlefish. Mm-hmm. Squids and cuttlefish are like kind of lumped together and then octopuses are like their own thing because we have more information about them and they're like more studied and everything. And I yeah. found that interesting too because the split between the octopods and the decapods happened pretty long ago in the past. I think the book said like 270 million years. Right, they thought it happened 170 million years ago, but then they like did more analysis and it was actually 270 million years ago. But that split happened really early, much earlier than we would think a super complex nervous system developed, which means that it arose, like a complicated nervous system arose individually in the octopods and in the decapods. So that's like, already like three different separate emergences of a complicated nervous system and then you consider like even in the vertebrate branch because like cephalopods are invertebrates in the vertebrate branch with us we have like mammals and stuff that have Mm -hmm. similar nervous systems to us but we also have birds like you mentioned birds a couple of times and like that is also like a separate branch if you wanted to think about it this way you could think of like four different types of intelligence across the animal kingdom so something he talks about in the earlier chapters is the is like the whole loss of the shell. So you have your vertebrate ancestor, this like Ediacaran, I think is the uh, era before the Cambrian. Ediacaran. Ediacaran, okay, cool. Yeah. You have this Ediacaran like worm thing that's like crawling along on the ocean floor and that has like a shell. And then it gets, somehow gets jettisoned into the water. And then you have this like swimming thing with a shell and then because like mollusks have shells right so what happens with the cephalopods is that they lose their shell so like for the octopus they like completely lose it the cuttlefish like internalizes it and then the squid has some kind of weird shell like small structure or something but the real the interesting part is that they lose this protective shell and then what happens is this is something i thought was really interesting with the nervous system is that it gives them more like motility and like makes them like this like blob thing and then you like really need like a strongly coordinated nervous system to like actually control what's going on in the body so that that is like one of the questions he poses like why why do octopuses have this like complicated nervous system why is it so big why why is it so complex and one of them is because they need to be able to action coordinate if you will and like control all of their limbs and stuff And that stems from this like loss of the shell. And then also like later on when the book goes into all of these stories about octopuses like in the lab being all like inquisitive and curious and like manipulating objects. He also like links that to this like initial loss of the shell and how that makes them more like mobile and 
manipulating the environment. And that could be a reason why with an already pretty large nervous system that like is used for manipulating the environment, it like kind of makes, there's like a logical thread there with them developing like an inquisitive nature or something. Yeah, yeah. And I think another good point to emphasize is sort of like the differences between the cephalopod nervous system and, you know, sort of like the human nervous system, right? Because mm-hmm. at least the sense that I got from the book was that the cephalopod nervous system is far more decentralized than the human nervous system. Yeah, so one of the interesting things about um, the cephalopods, mainly they study this in the octopus, they just have more data on the octopus, is that yeah. most of their neurons are like in their arms, not necessarily in their brain, which makes sense for this like action shaping view, because like you need all of the neurons in the arms to like control them fluidly. They have like an overall sense of control by the brain though. I think they did like an experiment where they like, had it stick one of its arms, had knocked the stick one of its arms in a maze, but like it was like a see-through maze so they could see where the exit was. So once the octopus like got good at navigating its arm through the maze, it would, its arm would go in the general correct direction, but like it would wiggle and like try and like explore a little in that area. And the way they interpret it is that is that the brain like overall controls the direction, but like the specifics are controlled by the arms themselves, which is like kind of weird to consider. <laughs> yeah, he does have like these uh, anecdotes of sort of like arms acting independently on octopi. And um, like, like, for example, one arm might be probing him or one of his uh, teammates, and then the other arms are occupied with some other sort of activity. So I found like that, that, that pretty cool, that sort of like decentralized nature and the fact that it's almost, it's, it's not like you have like eight different consciousnesses, right? Right. In the arms, but you have almost like eight different directors and all right. their movements are coming together to form one symphony of action. Right. Well, that was that was an interesting thing in like one of the later chapters. He talked a lot about like the concept of like self versus other and how like we have a pretty strong sense of like self versus like us versus other things and like other things in the environment. And he talks about how like cephalopods they have shown that they have like the idea of like perceptual constancy. So like if they see an object, but they like see it from a different angle, they can still recognize it as the same object. So they have like this sense that like objects exist in the environment. And then also that there were all these anecdotes of researchers who would like try and interact with an octopus, but they would just completely ignore the researcher, just like not even care that they were there. So like, they have this concept of like paying attention to things in the environment. So the way this ties back into the arms is that if you're an organism with like a complicated nervous system and you can like manipulate objects and then see that you've manipulated an object, I think the author was like trying to connect that to the idea of like, you have a sense of self, you have a sense of the other or the environment and you're like manipulating the environment and you are the one doing that. But with an octopus, it's kind of different because like the centralized brain is not in full control of the arms. So the arms are somewhat doing their own thing. So the question he asks is like, does the octopus have like a sense of self that is like fuzzy because like the arms are part self and part other or something? And that's something that's really interesting to me. Because it's like, from what I've been told, like it's kind of like, like being drunk in the sense that like you kind of send your arm out and hope that it's gonna go in the right direction and it either does or doesn't but like for an octopus 
because they have such a complicated nervous system in their arms, it like always works because we don't have like a decentralized nervous system. So that that is like something that could be related. But then also he talks about how like in humans, we also have things where like, if you're playing a video game that you really know, or you're playing an instrument, like you're, you kind of just do it. You don't need to like think about it. It kind of just happens. Yeah. yeah, they're like, they're like fine motor movements that happens that happen sort of unconsciously. Right. Pretty interesting. Right, right. And like maybe for an octopus, that's just like the extended version of that, where like most of the things that they do are just like not super uh, like controlled or like aware. They just kind of happen, which would like in a sense of like what is their subjective experience of that like, that's interesting. Because like he like he references Nagel at some point in this. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. There's yeah, there's an entire chapter devoted to, you know, the question of subjective experience. Right. Which right. Nagel is the focus of what is what is it like to be a bad. Right, and right. He tries to make like he he he's not talking about consciousness. That's that's the key thing here. Right. That think, was something right? I found interesting because he like drew a clear distinction and he said that consciousness is different from subjective experience but then when he was like going into it more he used them interchangeably sometimes and every time mm -hmm. in my notes i was like are you talking about consciousness or are you talking about subjective experience i think what he yeah. said was that you don't have to have consciousness to have subjective experience of something like you can be sentient of things and experience them without having what we consider consciousness which is like kind of hard to think about yeah but like i found that whole section really interesting because like the idea of consciousness is like the most interesting part of uh this field to me it's also like the, the hardest part to study so Absolutely, that's great yeah <laughs> right yeah. so he talks about subjective experience first um and how like he there was that one patient df who like doesn't have the subjective experience of sight, but like will is able to stick letters through like mailbox slots at different angles, like fine, she can do that fine. Um, yeah. But she doesn't have the experience of sight. And they like to, the, the study that he referenced said that um, she had damage to her uh, ventral stream of processing in the visual pathway. So that's like the what pathway and the dorsal stream, which is like more for like real time navigation and like, coordinating like movement with sensory stuff like that was like not damage but she didn't have the subjective experience of sight so they're trying to link the subjective experience of sight to the ventral stream and he uses that to lead into this theory by Milner and Goodale where he talks about how all of the activity in our brain that leads to a subjective experience so like like the ventral stream or whatever is trying to build a coherent model of the world because like for us our subjective experiences like integrated and coherent and it's like we're experiencing one experience from all of our senses and yeah. the idea that i really like is that this building of a coherent inner model that is our subjective experience and without the building of a coherent inner model there is no subjective experience that that's very that's that one's a little bit of a leap but like i really like that idea where he references like the study they did well, he references two things. He references birds and how their visual fields are like separate. Their left and their right visual fields don't really coordinate with each other. So like they don't really have like an integrated sense of it. In, yeah, integrated information. So like how can they have like an integrated experience? 
And then also with frogs, he talked about how you can rewire parts of their visual system so they like snap at prey to the left when the prey is actually at its right and like vice versa. So it snaps in the wrong direction, but no other visual processing has changed. Like they can still navigate and they can still move around objects and stuff. It's just like they will see reversed images of prey. I mean, like I know Nagel would say that we can't know this, but like how how would it feel to like see as a frog in that instance? Like do they like you can't have a cohesive experience if like you can just change this like one thing and then it's like everything else in your vision is fine, but you see a prey in the wrong area, like I don't it doesn't make sense. So he uses that to say that frogs don't they don't have coherent visual perception, a coherent integrated experience. So like there is no point to asking what is the subjective experience of seeing as a frog like because they don't have this integrated experience. I thought that was like that was a bit of a leap, but that was a really interesting leap for me to think about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they would say that like it doesn't feel like anything to look like to look through the eyes of a frog because like they don't have the internal machinery to build a coherent model. So that mm -hmm. it doesn't they they don't have a subjective experience which is really wild to think of. Well, is he, I mean, is, I mean, is he saying that, well, wait, wait, before we say that we, he doesn't have like a subjective experience, mm -hmm. like, don't you think that we should define like what it means to have subjective experience, right? I think, so this is, yeah, this is the, the, the Milner and Goodale model that he talks about is that yeah. this is like one model where having an integrated model, like the building of the integrated model in your brain, that is what gives us subjective experience. So that okay. the, the model is saying that our subjective experience is dependent on having a coherent inner model uh, of mm -hmm. the world. Which is something that's, which is a like debatable idea, right? Right, but, right. I mean, we know for us at least, we have a coherent inner model of the world and that is dependent yeah. upon stuff like, so like with the ventral stream example, like mm -hmm. the ventral stream in the brain, that activity contributes to our inner model and a loss of that activity makes us unable to subjectively experience sight even if we can like move around and do things we don't have the subjective experience of sight because that part is deleted or like broken in our coherent model so that's like that's like one theory he presents I like one of the things I like in this book is that he doesn't like say a lot of like this is the truth he's just like here are some theories and here's how I connect them to other things and I appreciate that but that was like one theory I found interesting is that yeah the subjective experience is dependent on a coherent inner model. Well, he, he eventually uses all these ideas to lead into, you know, these different versions of the global workspace theory, right? Right, right. But, so, yeah. right, right. There's like, he wanted to talk about a gradual development of consciousness, not just like consciousness appeared at some point. And he wanted to talk about, so he had like two views. He had like the latecomer view, which is that um, this is mainly on consciousness, less on subjective experience, is the idea that, so a lot of people in this field, according to him, say that you need like a global workspace for consciousness, like the consciousness is tied centrally to Barr's idea of global workspace theory, so that like we're conscious of information that has been like brought into a centralized workspace, or like the spotlight has been shown on like certain processes in the brain, and that is what we are conscious of. And then there was also the idea he brought up of like working memory being necessary and that consciousness is tied to whatever is currently in our working memory. Like we're conscious of what our brain is using to moment to moment solve problems in our working memory. 
So the latecomer view is basically, if you need those things for consciousness, you, it kind of ends up meaning that you have to think that consciousness is a very, very late development because very few uh, animals have like the complexity or like biological machinery to have anything like that as far as we know. So in that theory, consciousness would only develop very late in evolutionary history. The author really likes this transformational view and that there was a subjective form of experience that wasn't consciousness that existed before any global workspace or anything happened. And he ties this to things like pain and thirst and hunger and like primordial experiences that he claims that you don't really need to be conscious and don't need to have a complicated nervous system to have. So he looks at like animals which have wound guarding behaviors and that will like tend to their wounds when they get hurt. And also he did an example with like hermit crabs or some other like animal where they would make a decision to avoid something painful, but if they were getting a reward of something else, they would like be willing to deal with the pain in order to get that reward. But they, he showed that there are these animals that can make like decisions and like choices to avoid pain. So he had this idea that like these animals are having a subjective experience of pain and that that is still a subjective experience. And I find that, I find that compelling. Like it's mm -hmm. not like consciousness in the sense where like, I mean, it could be, I mean, it depends on what you think of consciousness, <laughs> but like, it's, yeah. it's definitely a subjective experience I think they're having. And so I think his, his like gradualism model that he talks about is that you, at, you have these like primordial experiences, like pain and hunger and whatever, but then as the nervous system gets more complex, I guess in the Cambrian explosion, like with more sensory stuff, but also more motor stuff, you can have a more complicated subjective experience and then later when like when the centralized nervous system gets like way more complex in like mammals and you get what looks like a global workspace or whatever then you get something that is more in line with what we think of as consciousness but um there was this form of subjective experience he would say that happened early on that gradually transitioned into consciousness which is like different because like Usually when you're studying consciousness, it's like consciousness is like an all or nothing thing. And like no one talks about like a gradual thing. Mm -hmm. So I found that cool. So um, I forget if he actually answers this question, but where does Peter Godfrey Smith place octopi like and in sort of like this, this spectrum, right? I forget if he thinks that like they meet the threshold or if he actually even says that they meet the threshold of, mm. you know, having a global workspace. Because, you know, in, in some ways, it almost seems as if, like, octopi and other cephalopods, like, they're, you know, they almost seem to occupy, like, an intermediate space between, right. you know, the highly integrated and highly um, centralized uh, human nervous system and then, you know, sort of, like, the more decentralized nervous systems of more basic organisms. Right. So I forget if, if he actually answers that question, but I think it's something that's kind of interesting to sort of speculate about. Right, yeah. I also am not fully sure if he answers it or he kind of just like hints at it. There are definitely like studies of, uh, I think he mentioned of octopuses having something kind of like working memory in the sense that they can remember where food is hidden and like know that um, like certain food is like going to go bad quote-unquote these are like experiments done in like labs where they like hide food and like rotate it out at certain times and they know 
which one to go to to get their favorite food in time before it like gets rotated out and that requires like some form of like working memory there's i don't remember if he says that there's some form of like global workspace or like complicated consciousness in octopi mm -hmm. or octopuses whatever that that like always trips me up because it's easier to say octopi but everyone it's says better to say octopi i like it anyway it's not important <laughs> um, yeah that's that's very true Right. Language um, is dependent on use, you know? Semantics language, see, he has that whole section, speaking of language, he has that whole section about, like, inner speech. That, like, mm. was really, that was really cool, but it took me a while to, like, understand what he was saying about inner speech. He mentions Hume and, like, Vygotsky, and, like, I've heard of Hume, I hadn't heard of Vygotsky. I, I've, I've, I've heard of Vygotsky, you know, maybe, like, once or twice, never internalized what he meant. But ah, I, I see find, what you did there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I I did find, like, that concept of inner speech, like, really, really interesting. And mm -hmm. I felt like it sort of related to something else that I had read called uh, The Language Instinct by Steven Pinker. Yeah. Um, which is an older book by him. I don't, I wouldn't recommend reading very many of the newer books. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like, one of these older books are definitely very cool. And, you know, as the book said, Bogatsky was a Marxist. Steven Pinker's most certainly not a Marxist, but like I found a similarity in the ideas is that in the language instinct, what he's trying to do is he's basically trying, he's, he's applying arguments for Chomsky's universal grammar, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the idea that like all humans have an innate sense of language, grammar and that yeah. languages can be reduced to universal grammar. And what Chomsky doesn't, apparently Chomsky doesn't believe that the emergence of that universal grammar is due to evolution. Mm -hmm. And Steven Pinker does. And one of the one of the earlier points in the book uh, that he was talking about is that humans, like in our mind, we sort of, we communicate with ourselves with, uh, he calls it mentalese, mm -hmm. um, which is, which to me sounds pretty similar to Vygotsky's notion of inner speech, right? Because right? the inner speech or the mentalese, as Pinker would call it, is different from the actual language that we use to communicate with other humans, right? Right. Right. So like uh, where Pinker talks a lot about, you know, like translating things from mentalese to, you know, human speech, Vygotsky talks about, you know, that inner speech and then how that, um, I forget if he has a term for it, but you know, but how we communicate that inner speech to other people. Right. That's like Vygotsky's idea, which is talked about in this book, is that inner speech, so like the concept of like a running mental like commentary or just like thoughts that you think kind of in terms of speech in your head. Vygotsky's idea is that it started, so like external speech first is a thing in like development as ch children develop, and then mm -hmm. that gets internalized into like an inner form of speech, which is what mm -hmm. leads to complex thought, mm -hmm. which is a, which is like a bit of a, a strong claim. And it's something that yeah. um, he, the, this book also mentioned Darwin, that Darwin claimed that inner or outer speech is required for complex thought, which is like like very strong Sapir Whorf vibes is what that gives me. Um, yeah, yeah. So in, in Pinker, it's like almost the complete opposite. Mentalese comes first before human speech. And mm -hmm. um, where the Vygotsky view seems to imply the Sapir Whorf hypothesis, um, which just for people who don't know the idea that languages, like different languages have pretty significant impacts on, you know, the cognition. Right? Mm -hmm. would, you, would you agree with that definition? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That like language affects, like the strongest version is that language require, is like required for and like basically 
what causes thought and like the weaker versions are like language influences thought basically yeah exactly yeah. and pinker poo-poos on that entire idea yeah he's very he's extremely dismissive of, of this idea because for him mentally is independent of actual human speech right so like the, think, the path of causation is different from Vygotsky right I think I think another thing um that like kind of goes against that idea is in this book he mentions um baboons and how they have a very like limited quote-unquote vocabulary of like series of like growls and like hoots and whatever but yeah. there are like certain sh like string there's like this whole thing where like if two of them if two male baboons are interacting and like one of them hoots or growls before the other one does the other thing the other ones in the area can tell who in the hierarchy has been challenged and who in the hierarchy has been defeated and like um they keep up this complicated social hierarchy only through a limited number of like hoots and growls so you could argue that there is complex thought going on like thought about like who is in charge of the social order or like who has been like ousted or whatever but there's not a lot of language going on it's just like mm. a series of hoots and growls so that's one one thing that this book talks about is like a counter to the idea that like language is necessary for thought but also like birds like even outside of mammalians like birds like crows and jays can uh, distinctly remember where food is stored, when is stored, and stuff like that, but without any real concept of, like, language. So, like, I think the author of this book falls in, like, a somewhat middle ground where, like, language provides, like, a language is, like, helpful for the structuring of thought, but it's not, like, required for it. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things is, like, he brings back the ideas of efference copies, so just to provide more background on efference copies, there's the idea that obviously your sensations affect your actions. That's as old as bacteria sensing concentration gradients and moving towards them. However, there's also like a converse where your actions can affect your sensations. So the example in the book is that they use electric fish and they can sense the electrical fields around them, but they also give off an electric field. So it begs the question, how do they distinguish between their own electric field and the environment. So what they do is they send out a copy of their electric field to their sensory systems and that allows them to cancel it out. And that copy is what we mean when we say an efference copy. There are a lot of examples of animals in the animal kingdom doing this, like sending out a copy of their own actions in order to affect their sensation. Um, but an efference copy is something really interesting that this book brings up. He brings back the ideas of efference copies, but he brings this up with inner speech in the idea of like, um, if we're assuming that like outer speech or just like speech happened first and then inner speech is like an internalization of that, um, it's kind of like an efference copy in the sense that you're creating an efference copy of the speech you are giving in the outside world and uh, you can use that efference copy, quote unquote, like use it to like structure your thought and like organize your ideas um and like maybe this is how inner speech like evolutionarily developed is the idea that um is presented in the book is that there was external speech um or just like maybe not like speech or like language but just like external it's some form of external communication yeah, some form of ex external communication and then you get an efference copy of that in a sense 
with like internal communication and that can evolve as the nervous system evolves into helping structure thought that was something i found uh pretty pretty interesting but like even more interesting is like this connection to the global workspace from before is the idea that like so when you are inner speeching quote unquote that's what i said in my notes like when you have inner speech it kind of feels yeah. like like you're hearing something from the not like you're hearing something from the outside world but like you're able to like like analyze your thoughts in like an external sense from your own thoughts like you're not it's hard to explain but the idea of like inner speech is like broadcasting information in your brain so like if there's information in like a part of your brain or like your brain has information that it wants the rest of your brain to know inner speech as a method for like quote unquote vocalizing that and broadcasting that information so the idea where this is another idea is that like consciousness or like thought in a sense is when you have like a global workspace and you're focusing on ideas and then through inner speech that's broadcasted to the rest of your brain it like once he starts connecting all of these it kind of feels like he's like pulling together different words and being like you know like subjective experience and consciousness is the broadcasting of inner global workspace and you're like okay slow down <laughs> like kind of hard yeah. to like, fit everything together when he talks about it like that but i do like the idea of inner speech being tied to like conscious thought in the sense that it's broadcasting information in your brain to your own brain in like an efference copy sense so that you can structure your own thought and like like i know like if i'm thinking about something and i am like thinking about it and i have like a, an inner monologue going on that's much easier to like unpack and like figure out what's going on and like structure my thought than like just like ambient things you know mm -hmm. oh, and he does talk about how this is like not this is like a theory that he has where like inner speech being like um an efference copy um and it, it it being used to broadcast information in the brain like there is no like evidence for any of that but it's like a theory that he has okay but, like it makes sense so, that, so like, let me let me ask oh go ahead oh okay i was gonna let me ask um just so just for clarification mm -hmm. the the efference copy in question is of other humans language right so does that mean that like this sort of inner speech is necessarily composed of words? Um, I think, yeah, I think, well, the way Vygotsky says, um, mm -hmm. yeah, that it is a, it's an, uh, it's an internalization of already external speech. I guess yeah. in the efference copy sense that um, Godfrey Smith says it, it's like, if you're speaking or communicating, he posits that the brain makes an efference copy of that speech for yourself which uh which is interesting to consider like he posits that that's how inner speech started like that's how inner speech started evolutionarily but i like sometimes you're not speaking to anyone you're just having inner speech like you're just thinking thoughts mm -hmm. in your brain um yeah he he posits that it started as an efference copy and then um as the nervous system got more complex it developed into this thing that like um is used by the brain to broadcast thoughts and like um have all of the brain have access to those thoughts quote unquote to like organize them and like analyze them so like it could so i if i'm understanding him correctly it started as more of an efference copy um and then evolved into something that is used to structure thought i think okay. is what he's saying 
And the reason why I ask, like, are these efferent copies composed of, you know, as in like words and like, but just to clarify that Vygotsky is talking primarily about words is um, because I know that in my own subjective experience, like the stuff of thought or like mental disease, as Pinker would say, it isn't always composed of words, you know, sometimes it's composed of like an image. Um, like Hume would say. <laughs> or, you know, like something that's something that's like non-lingual. Right, right. Like, like I think Hume would say like, um, like, perceptions or like impressions of ideas right mm -hmm. um that just like pass one into another this is something i thought of that was like um kind of interesting is that uh like i think yeah vygotsky and like others kind of assume that you need like language for this inner speech thing to happen but honestly i think like it's something i think you can train and i think in a sense um like you can train yourself to put language to your um, like impressions and your thoughts that aren't dependent on language. I think that's a lot of what cognitive behavioral therapy is. Um, and I think um, some people are like more, are better at it than others because they've trained to like put words and language to their thoughts. Cause if you're having like impressions or just like images and you like, in my subjective experience, if you like try and put those into language in your head, it makes them easier to understand and it makes them more uh, coherent, I guess, in a way, and you are able to analyze them better, which is, I think, what um, Godfrey Smith is saying is the purpose of inner speech is it helps you organize and broadcast your thoughts, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe, like, like you can have, like, I, th I guess the takeaway is that, like, you can have thoughts and you can um, have, like, subjective experience, but, um, when you start using inner speech or you start having like putting language to those thoughts it becomes um more complex it becomes more organized and i would say evolutionarily that would give you an advantage i guess socially or just like in the environment and that is what passes that on to like more um to have more complex inner speech later on but i think i think i think it's worthwhile to say that you don't need words and language to like have thought I think that's yeah. worthwhile, but I think it's also worthwhile to say that having that words, words and language is like an advantage, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think in part, I agree with you. I just, I just think that I sometimes wonder, you know, if there might be some sort of like heterogeneity, you know, and just like how, you know, a homo sapiens, you know, organize their thoughts, right? Because if we take human as word, and he, so, and if he thinks that, you know, perception and, um, perception and like this sort of like thread of consciousness is, isn't really structured by language at all. It's just like a series of impressions and sensations. Um, you know, he was like a pretty smart guy and I wouldn't be one to say that like, you know, he wasn't able to, you know, structure his thoughts. Obviously his ideas are communicated in language. Right. But I'm not sure if like when he's organizing those ideas in his mind that like he's organizing them, you know, with language in his mind and then using them to, and then, right. and then, you know, using that structure to, you know, communicate it to the outside world. So, right. I, I mean, all this is like completely speculative, but right. I, you know, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm just has, I, I'm, I'm just wondering if like, you know, this emphasis on words and language is really like necessary to sort of like, like explain like the organization of thoughts within the mind. Right. Well, that in, in, yeah, in the book, he like, he mentioned the study of the guy who had a stroke and, um, like or would have like strokes and in those strokes they he wouldn't have any like 
inner monologue or inner speech, quote unquote, but he was still able to like do things and like um, interact with people like by like gesturing to things and like he could accomplish tasks and stuff. And he like could, for the period of time where like um, his inner speech, quote unquote, was gone, he could still like function and he was still a person. Um, so like, it's not like it's completely necessary. Um, I think he's looking at it from like an evolutionary perspective in the sense that like, why would we have evolved inner speech? Probably the, I think what he's saying is that because it is useful for structuring thought and that makes it uh, more advantageous for, uh, so like he, he like, he messes around with evolution every now and then where he says like something evolved because it was advantageous or like something evolved to uh, fulfill a place, which is something I'm always careful about because like evolution didn't involve, didn't like things don't evolve in order to do something. Things evolve because they're beneficial in the environment. So like every time he says that, I try and like check myself in my brain to say like, okay, maybe um, like inner speech evolved quote unquote in the sense that it, um, inner speech, uh, if you had like uh, language to structure your thought in a sense, or if you had more structured thought in that way, it would give you an evolutionary advantage over uh, your compatriots that didn't, and that would allow you to like survive longer and reproduce and whatever. And that's how inner speech could have evolved as something um, that like is selected for in a sense, I think is what he's saying. I think there could be heterogeneity of human experience. But I think maybe that is like hard to like. Uh, that goes back to like the whole Nagel thing because like we can't we can't really know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and we'll loop with humans with humans. We can sort of self-report, but even then, right. like self-reported data, you know, is is always going to be sketchy, right? Right. Uh, right. Um, yeah. I think I think this idea that you know, like you know, having some sort of inner speech to like basically um, you know organize thought. I, I think. I mean, it may. It, it makes sense, right, that like that would be advantageous to be able to mm -hmm. do that. And but but just to be clear, this is an idea that only humans have constructed, right? right. Or or is he saying that this also applies to the baboon example? It applies to like the signaling example of octopi, which he also discusses further in the book. Right. Um, well, I think I think baboons that was like a, a counterexample to the idea, because like mm -hmm. they don't have very complicated external speech so like would mm -hmm. would they have if internal speech is an internalization of external speech yeah, then like yeah. you would assume that baboons don't really have inner speech but they mm -hmm. have complex thought and like memory and stuff so that's like a counter example i think with octopuses the interesting um part comes with their whole like like they are not very social like at all um in like the in the wild octopuses are not very social which is really Except interesting Except for Octopolis. Octopolis is, is wild, man. I want to go to Octopolis. Um, but like in a non-Octopolis sense, uh, they're not very social, um, which is wild considering the whole like section about their uh, colored patterning. Um, and they have like these beautiful complex patterns and like um, they're like super like expressive. And like there, there was like that one octopus named Matisse who would just like like burst into like yellow like randomly and like yellow they thought was like an alarm color but like he would just do it for fun um and and these guys have like such complicated expressions but one they're not very social like they don't interact with each other a lot except for like mating and like every now and then like when they get into fights and um 
two, they don't, they have one photoreceptor, so, like, they can't even see each other's colors, so there's, like, no reason for the color expression to be that complex and that lively. Yeah. It's just, it just is like that, so I found that, like, really interesting. That was, like, the one part where I was, like, whoa, (laughs) hold on. Mm Mm-hmm. And they, like, have multiple reasons why this could have been the case. So the first one is camouflage, which makes a lot of sense if you consider um, the whole, like, when they lost their (laughs) shells, they had to become, they got, like, less protected. Got to protect yourself somehow. Right. They, like, had to be more protected. Um, And then also, like, so all of their color system is, like, wired up to their nervous system. It's controlled by their nervous system. So, like, if you already had a complicated nervous system because you needed to be able to like action coordinate and control your now loose blobby body um, and you need camouflage and you need to be camouflaged, like it makes sense that you would get like a very complicated patterning system. Um, Also there's the idea of like like mating displays and like how like the color system helps with mating displays and then also um, uh, what they call daematic displays, like, which are just, like, to confuse and ward off predators, like, if, like, they occupy are predators, but they're also predated upon, so, like, if, like, a fish comes to attack it, and then it just, like, starts shooting off wild colors, then, like, that's, like, a warding off kind of thing, but my favorite idea is that this, like, patterning and, like, color expression, because, like, They've, like, done studies where they just watch octopuses and cuttlefish, and they just, like, will randomly cycle through colors and patterns just for apparently no reason, um, and they'll be, like, pretty complex patterns, too. Like, they have, like, a cloud display, like, some kind of, like, some kind of screensaver. It's wild, but, like, my favorite reason for this is it's because it's this idea of, like, an innate chatter in the nervous system where, like, because their color expression is, like, wired up to their nervous system they have this like internal activity constantly going on in the nervous system like anyone does just like noise and like a nervous system just functioning and these colorful displays are just like a reflection of that chatter which I find really interesting because like there's no super social reason why they would need to be communicating this much to each other but it makes sense if it's just like a byproduct of a really complex nervous system that's also wired to an expression system yeah yeah we so we watched a video about Chomsky for this class and he talked about the language acquisition device and everything and he he was asked like doesn't means like our uh we're less influenced by the environment than by like a innate thing um that was a question he was asked in this interview and he and he like kind of disagreed with that but he said that if our if our expression of language if our language was only influenced like in a behaviorism sense like by what we got from the environment, then like through conditioning and everything, then like our expression would only be a direct reflection of what's in our environment because we're only like influenced by the environment. So what we express is only gonna be a reflection of our environment. It's not gonna be dependent on anything else. And that reminded me of this whole octopus thing where like their expression in a color sense is only dependent on like their nervous system environment they don't have like this internal communication thing that is 
being used to like express anything except in the sense of like maybe mating and stuff like that yeah or, or like fear or something like that right and i really like this idea of like a social dynamic being really important to like like a complex nervous system because like going to octopolis which is a wild wild example so just to describe octopolis <laughs> so it's it's like a a bed of seashells with like rocks and like piles of stuff in it where octopuses have kind of like colonized it and like made it like I don't want to say it's like a society but it feels like a society <laughs> it like so there's like a central big like den where like the an octopus lives and then there's like dens scattered all around and like the one in the middle is the one that like fights with everyone and like kind of is quote unquote like in charge like it's the one that the one that like wins the most fights yeah it's the most dominant one and like you know they don't they don't do this in the wild they don't like they have like dens and stuff but they're all super like distant from each other they don't they don't interact with each other but these guys will like wander around this area and like go around to each other and like fight each other or like there are these stories of like these octopuses that like it will like go to another one's den and then it will like stick its tentacle and then just like see what the other octopus is because like they have all their sensory information in their tentacles and like either they will like like flash like a non-aggression color and then like leave each other alone or they will like flash an aggression color and like start fighting and it's like a really like interesting like social experiment because like these guys aren't social normally but um mm-hmm. they are and then also like in a lab sense octopuses can like recognize experimenters and they'll have like experimenters like there was that one story of the one octopus who hated this like one particular lady and like whenever she walked past he would like squirt water at her and like that's not even like recognizing someone by like touch by like their touch receptors but they're just like able to recognize people and it's like why there's no like they're not social in their environment so like why are they social when they're put in like a weird octopolis environment that just happened by chance or by in a lab why do they have these social cues and i think it's interesting that like for them and then for any other like intelligent animal i would say like dolphins baboons outside of mammals even like birds most of those are like pretty social um and i think peter godfrey smith says at one point like a social interaction and needing that social interaction is like something that is kind of key for developing a complex nervous system because in a sense you do something and like you do an action and then it's perceived by others or like perceived by the social order of your system and then consequences happen and then you perceive those consequences and it's like another like it's another loop in a sense where you're um, acting and then perceiving and then acting and perceiving. But like if you're acting in relation to other organisms, it becomes like more complex and you can have like a social order. And I don't know, I just thought that was interesting the link between like having a social system and like having complicated intelligence. I thought that was a really interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. especially since like, um, you know, studiers of uh, biological anthropology with humans, mm-hmm. like usually point to the fact that, you know, it's usually um, the most social proto-humans are the ones that we're like uh, most likely to be, um, d- to be um, descended from, right? That like, 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 so like social interaction between um, these proto-humans is like one of the key factors in sort of like their explosion past other primates. Right. I, that's really interesting. And like, also to like, go back to like the Ediacaran era or whatever, um, is like, before then, something he denotes is that that era, the Ediacaran era, was very socially isolated. There was not a lot of interaction between organisms, like not even in like a, like a camaraderie or like whatever sense in like, 
predation or like anything like that. That didn't really exist. You got to wait for the Cambrian explosion to see claws or like grabbing implements or like things that denote social interaction or predation or competition with other organisms. And like that coincides with this like more complex nervous system developing. So it's like, the actions of other organisms are finally influencing your perception because now we have eye spots and perception apparatuses. So you're having a feedback between other organisms and the self organism. So you're having the social interaction combined with a complicated nervous system. So that is like something that is like really key in the sense that I think he said something that like the mind evolved as a response to other minds, which is like good reference to the title. But, like, it's an interesting thought that, like, the interaction with other organisms is something that is, like, key to the development of, like, intelligence, quote-unquote. I thought that was interesting. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was a really interesting book. A lot of it was evolutionary, but I think that's an important, like, perspective to be, like, why did this develop and, like, how could it have been useful and then how could it have been shaped or changed into what it is now and i think that's not really considered like it is considered a little but it's not considered a ton in a lot of cognitive neuroscience i would say really um, i mean i don't know maybe perspective i mean maybe it is maybe i'm just not like well read up enough on it but i feel like at least in my class and a lot of classes i've taken it's just like a it's like hey here's like an evolutionary perspective and it's like here and it's like let's just talk about the evolutionary side now let's go back to like our main point but i think it's interesting to have like the main point be like how did things like evolutionarily develop like how did consciousness go from like a white noise sense where like there's like not a lot happening to like the primordial pain and like other stuff like as a subjective experience and then it transitioned into something that's more complicated with like like maybe inner speech or just like a global workspace like that development is really interesting to me and I I really I like appreciated that um and I also appreciated like looking at the octopus because like as he said like it is evolutionarily very distinct from anything we normally consider intelligent but I think you would be hard pressed to like say that it doesn't have some form of intelligence. Um, mm -hmm. Just looking at like, first of all, Octopolis, like what? <laughs> and like, second of all, um, like lab studies where like they have them like interacting with researchers and stuff like that. You would be hard pressed to say that Octopi just like aren't like curious and like playful and like inquisitive. Like that's something he uses a lot is that they're inquisitive and they're like trying to like figure stuff out with like their food or like toys that people have or like things that fall into the ocean. They like play with them. And it would be hard to say that they aren't in some sense intelligent, mm. but they're like so different from us. It's like looking at where that difference is and like how it developed. I think that's really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Okay. So that was really my main conversation with Christian. Uh, we did talk a little bit about embodied cognition and the couple of references to that in the book, but it didn't really fit in anywhere with the main flow of the conversation, so I have it just at the end here. But overall, we both really enjoyed this book and thought it was a good exploration of kind of the evolution of consciousness in both the human line and in the invertebrate line with the octopuses. So yeah, that's it. Oh, he, like, mentioned embodied cognition, like, once or twice. Yeah. He seemed to have a problem with it, but I feel like I didn't really understand his problem with it. So his main problems with it 
where that when he talks about embodied cognition, he talks about the idea of like the environment being stored in the body as like relationships between joints or like whatever. Um, and he says that octopuses don't have that because they're just blobs. And then he also, the other thing that he talks about more is that embodied cognition is the idea that our body affects our thought or our body affects our um, cognition, quote unquote, if you want to use those words, or like the body affects how the brain works. Um, yeah. He thinks that embodied cognition relies on a distinction between brain and body. Um, and that distinction doesn't exist in an octopus because they have this distributed system. So that you can't really apply embodied cognition. He did like reference the idea that like they're differently bodied. And I personally, this is my opinion, I think that an octopus is like the quintessential example of embodied cognition because it is doing um, sensation, a lot of like um, a, a lot of sensation and perception is like happening in the arms, in like the body, quote unquote, um, like all of like that action shaping thing of like the arms doing their own thing. That is like, I would say that that is like a form of embodied cognition. And then also if you think about like the idea of the, like the expression of colors coming from like their uh, internal mental chatter, that's like like they are like the colors on their skin are like embodying their cognition quote unquote I feel like it I feel like if you wanted an example of embodied cognition you would point to the octopus like that's what I would say at least yeah especially with like the colors I think with your first example I, I feel like Godfrey Smith would just say well actually I, I feel like you would just sort of like wave your critique away even though I think it's pretty I think it's fairly legitimate by just saying that like with the arms, what we're talking about are, you know, the nervous system cells in the arms and themselves. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, like, um, because you're talking about the nervous system, essentially, what you're not talking about is the body, you're just talking about the nervous system, like you would any other organism. Um, but I do think I, and I, I'm not sure if that's really like, I, I'm not sure that if that particularly gets at the heart of the issue. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, I'm also not an expert on body cognition. Right, so, me either. So but I do think that like the um, idea with like the uh, with the colors, I do think that's like a pretty. Um, I, I I'm not sure like how he would be able to effectively respond against that. Yeah, know? yeah. I think I think like at its root, embodied cognition is the idea that like the body affects how thought or cognition works. Um, yeah. And I think um, it makes sense to like have like a disagreement between like like normal cognition that happens in the brain and embodied cognition that is influenced by other stuff. It makes sense to have that debate in like the human realm um, because we have such a centralized brain compared to the rest of our nervous system, uh, the rest of our like, like you have the brain and the central nervous system is like super complex and the periphery is like not as complex, yeah. but like in an octopus, in a cephalopod, it's more distributed, right? So it makes sense that um, that line gets like blurred a bit 